This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. Dollars and Change is here every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific. I always do that. Specifically (laughs) at 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific and replayed throughout the week on the Sirius XM app. So you can join us there. We have a great show in store for you today with our guest who will join us in just a moment is Tim Flocka. Tim is the Executive Director of Commonwealth, and we're going to be talking about financial security and financial independence for everyone. Yes. And it's, it's, it's um, I think, sometimes a hidden issue, but it's it's really important. And um, it has deep implications when you are don't have $400 saved in savings for an emergency or just anything coming up. So yeah. and we're there's gonna, a lot there. We're going to make that segment very relevant for, for all of our guests and make sure that this is not finance in the sky. This is really breaking down to uh, what folks can do today. And indeed, that is what Tim is doing at this organization. Exactly. Let's jump right in and welcome Tim Flocka, Executive Director of Commonwealth. Tim, welcome to Dollars and Change. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. Right. Well, we're excited for the conversation as well. So you helped launch this organization in 2001. Why did Why did you do that? What was the pain point or the need that um, you, you saw? Yeah, great question. And maybe I'll just take it take it a, a step back. Um, for myself, I, I started my career in a in a corporate job working in in HR for a, a large retailer, and you know that really put me on the front lines of the financial lives of of hourly workers. We had five six thousand workers across thirteen states, and you know one of the things I was responsible for in that role were the savings programs, the defined contribution four hundred one k and you know, so I spent time out in, in, in stock rooms and, you know, break rooms trying to persuade people that they should part with some of their wow. wages. Yeah. And so that really set me up on a course. That in my own case, after a while, I really wanted to change directions. I took some time and, and volunteered for a year in a, a rural, really anti-poverty agency up in, in Vermont. And what I saw over and over again is that, you know, people are amazing. The, the, the choices they make to manage um, on really tight resources um, but it's an incredible struggle, and people need they need tools and they need opportunities to make the most of what they have. So with that backdrop, I later found myself in graduate school studying public policy and met a, a finance professor who was interested in a similar set of issues and a, a third gentleman who had been a community organizer and then a banker, and we said there's a need here for thinking about consumer finance at a really systemic level. And at that point, you know, nearly 20 years ago, there were a lot of neat things happening on the internet and technology. And we said, this stuff has to be relevant to how you help regular people manage their money and try to build some, some assets, some wealth. So that was really the spark for us. Very cool. And, and jump into what is this organization today and what does it help people do? Yeah, great. I mean, for us, we are, we are a mission-driven organization, more specifically a, a 501c3. So it really starts with what's the mission, and it is financial security and opportunity for everyone, for the whole country. And, uh, you know, we'll probably get into this in the discussion, as, as you said in the intro. Sometimes, you know, depending on where you are in the economy, you may just not realize that roughly half the population is just really living with chronic financial anxiety. Um, in fact, I just saw a statistic recently that 78% of Americans report they're living paycheck to paycheck. 
Um, 78% of Americans paycheck to paycheck. That is, I mean, these statistics are, they're startling. They're startling. And you think about what the what that means day in and day out in mm-hmm. your role as a parent or an employee right. or a member of your community. You know, I just I, I kind of think it's a it's a tax that we carry around, and a mm-hmm. certain fraction of our energy and our attention is just constantly thinking about you know how the finances work out and making it through the month. And yeah, well, and, and you use the word anxiety in there, like almost that that it has this medical designation of you know toxic stress or. Um, you know, this this being something that is understandably top of mind and causing causing anxiety all day. Well, and also there's a Harvard professor, and I, I never remember his name, but I really need to learn it because I refer to him a lot, who's done a lot of research around, around this. And there's a bandwidth issue. Your brain can only concentrate on so many things at the same time. And if you're really paycheck to paycheck and trying to figure out how to make the next, you know, the rent payment, et cetera, mm-hmm. that that takes up brain power. It forces you to not focus on other things. So it's a it's not just anxiety; it's cognitive impairment. Sure, and a, and a vicious cycle because how does that show up at work and all these other things? So Tim, tell us how you you know you you and your your co founders here had a passion for it. The issue is significant. How did you decide where you attempt to make a dent in it, and how? Yeah, no, great question. And I mean, I think uh, uh, often this is the case with organizations. You don't have all the talking points worked out when you start. Um, so it's certainly evolved for us. But in a word, it's really, or two words, it's about innovation and influence. Um, so we see our role against this you know, huge problem as trying to find and cultivate creative solutions that somehow the marketplace has missed. And we can talk more about why that is. And then figure out, you know, for the ones that we can prove to ourselves really have some traction and seem to really matter to people, how do we get those insights out to the stakeholders who can really make them matter? I mean, we're pretty clear that as a relatively small actor, we have a great role to play in finding the solutions and testing them and understanding the consumers that we're thinking about. But when it comes to broad-scale impact, you know, we, get, we need to get to the large actors who have the reach and the role in people's lives to, to make those solutions matter. So I can, I can illustrate with an example That'd if that great. would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a theme in our work from the beginning has really been savings. That's just so critical in people's lives. And uh, we need a lot of things to be financially secure and, and prosper, but savings is sort of a constant. Um, but the rub is, you know, none of us like to save. It's kind of a lousy uh, proposition to go out to people with and say, you know, short-term sacrifice in exchange for long-term, you know, benefit. That's not really a winner. And so our work is focused a lot on how we change that, reframe it for people. Um, one idea that had a lot of traction in other countries was to reward savings behavior with prizes. Um, a fun fun factoid is that in this country, we spend about $80 billion a year on state lottery play. Um, in Massachusetts, where we're headquartered, some years we have the distinction of the highest per capita lottery play. It's more than $600 for every person in the country Whoa. every year. Every, wow. Not household, person. Yeah, yeah, person. $600. Yeah, yeah. So just to, you know, just to finish the illustration, the question was, could we somehow tap into that thing that we all seem to be wired to really enjoy or be drawn to with games of chance, graft it onto savings and, and reframe savings mm-hmm. as something that was exciting and fun and engaging and immediately rewarding? 
Um, so that's work that, you know, we started out with an idea, we built some, some prototypes, we tested them in credit unions, and we've been working on this one for quite some time. But if you fast forward, uh, we've now helped thir- uh, 30 states to change their state laws to make that product that I described legal, where you can reward somebody's savings deposits with a chance to win a prize. Uh, we got a little bill through Congress to clear away some some federal prohibitions. And we worked with a wide number of financial actors, everything from credit unions to uh, Walmart and Green Dot Bank um, to various different fintechs to kind of help them use these insights in savings products that they have. So that illustrates our role. We have, you know, crazy ideas in some cases. We're really committed to get dirt under our fingernails and see if we can build prototypes, try them out, and see if anybody wants them. Are they better off if they use them? And then we turn to that influence. That's the innovation side. Then we turn to the influence. How do we get those insights out to the, you know, the policymakers, the retailers, the financial service firms that can take them to market in a big way? And, and what's in- interesting about that is the, the reliance on um, big institutional players and corporations, et cetera, because I think it's um, insightful to recognize that it's they have powers to drive the adoption of these uh, innovations in ways that nonprofits or individuals might not be able to, right? Because it's it's such a, a pervasive part of our economy. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, you touched on you know savings is saving is boring. What else did you learn and have to understand about the psychology of savings that helped to shape and design these innovative opportunities? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's so much to know, but it's some common sense things that we've seen over and over again. It needs to be easy. It needs to be convenient. It needs to be in the right place at the right time. Um, all of those sort of elements or features of savings product design are relevant, and uh, we've seen them in, in terms of adding uh, a liquid emergency savings feature to prepaid cards. Prepaid mm. cards are used by lots of people who, you know, maybe don't find the banking system the best way to serve their financial needs, so a lot of lower-income people. Uh, and many of them are really transaction-focused. They were a substitute for the checking account. We've worked with a prepaid provider, you know, going back several years to try out what happens if you make a liquid savings feature available and it turns out, you know, that there was a lot of pent-up demand um, with no marketing and no financial incentive to use a feature like that. When we stopped keeping track, they had risen to 16% of their cardholder base was using this feature every month. Wow. And, yeah, and so it just reinforces that a lot of times um, people, people want to do these things. I, I really, you know, in whatever it's been, 20, 25 years of this work, I've really never met a person who says, savings, I don't buy it. You know, <laughs> it's like that's not a good thing to do. That's not a smart thing to do. The challenge is much more that people are like, yeah, I know I should, but it's like losing weight, right? You know, yeah. how, right? you got to help me. And, and so much, I think, particularly with finances, we, we start from a place of, um, you know, it's about me, it's about my choices, it's about whether I'm doing the right thing. And of course, that's part of it. But what we need is more effort on how do we get the structures and the institutions and the systems to kind of help you do the thing you want to do already. And so that that's another way we think about our role. Fascinating. Um, I'm curious. Well, let's uh, let's jump into some of your more some more examples from you because you guys are doing great stuff. I won't harp on the psychology of savings too long. Um, what what's some advice that you have for our listeners for things that you think folks should look into or explore, whether they're innovations that you guys have launched or underutilized tools in the space? Yeah, well, I'll give one, and it it speaks to some of our recent work. Um, 
many people don't realize that uh, their employer will offer um, the ability to have their paycheck sent to more than one place. You know, on the one hand, you're like, well, what does that Why would do you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's this uh, split or multiple direct deposit is really powerful because it allows you to say, I'm just going to start with five bucks if that's what it is. But all I got to do is tell my payroll department, you know, put all my pay but for five bucks into my checking account, take that five bucks, or maybe if it's 50 or maybe it's 500, whatever you can do, and put it into my savings account or my IRA if you have one. Mm-hmm. And, and then the, the power of that idea is, is somewhat straightforward. Rather than having to make that choice every two weeks or every month, whatever you get paid, you make the choice once, you know, and the payroll department makes sure that you live up to that aspiration every single time. Um, and there are parallels. The same is true of the IRS. Um, we did a bunch of work to test out this idea and together with others. And the IRS now for a while has offered multiple direct deposits for your federal tax refund. And here, too, the power of the idea is that it's so much more likely to happen if you pre-commit. You know, you have this intention to save. Well, if you, you know, essentially make that decision when you file your return and you say, I want this amount of my refund to go into my savings account, my IRA, maybe investment account, whatever you have, you know, you're so much more likely to do it. Um, so, so that would be one thing I would encourage listeners to think about. And, I, you know, for the, those of your listeners who are sitting in a, in a leadership position or an HR position inside corporations or other employers, you know, ask yourself, do you offer this? Probably you do, or your payroll vendor does. Have you told your people about it? Um, that in and of itself really makes a difference. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how, when you get that raise, um, can you link that to some savings activity? And that set of pipes, that multiple direct deposit plumbing, is really part of the, part of the formula. Tim, tell us a little bit about... Uh Expand upon the role of the employer, I was just gonna and I'm even that, thinking yeah. of the manager because I think <clears throat> money is one of those taboo subjects where you know I I certainly never told the folks I manage about these options or how I maximize you know the uh, you know FSA or HSA or you know the different components of yeah. tools made available by my employer because it felt like overstepping or inappropriate or it gets personal fast. What do you think managers should be doing? Do you have any, you know, uh, you know, programs or research that suggests that should be shifted? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, the first thing I would say is I think you're spot on. That most of us are really uncomfortable talking about finance, personal finance, and uh, that may be a, a good thing or a bad thing. But I think just recognizing that is really important because um, I share your sense. It wouldn't feel safe or right, you know, to, to tell folks who are working for you even to sort of suggest what they might want to do. Uh, In most cases, you know, the HR department um, can play that role in a way that feels slightly less personal. Um, So I would would encourage folks to think about that. Onboarding is such an important moment, um, and and maybe onboarding doesn't have to happen just in one, you know, one, two-hour session. Maybe there's some follow-up. but I think it's it's what we talked about. It's think about what are all the opportunities that your employer makes available to you and, and how do you take advantage of them. Um, one thing that is worth calling out in this conversation is, you know, when we think about financial uh, tools and opportunity for, for regular working people, um, one challenge we've got to face is that it's tough to make money as a financial institution servicing uh, low-income, low-savings-balance customers in a way that's honorable and, and not exploitative. And the reason that I mention that in this conversation is that employers are one of the few institutions 
that has both capabilities to help, and uh, primarily payment systems, right? They're paying you every couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and an incentive to do so. There's just an increasing body of evidence, really overwhelming, that no surprise if your workers are, are thinking about whether or not the check's going to bounce on Friday and who among their friends they can hit up for a short-term loan and whether or not you know their, their husband's landscaping business is going to be delayed in, in getting off the ground this season because of the rain and all of this stuff. Um, you know, did the copay rise on the health insurance and what does that mean for their kids' asthma, you know, medica- medication? All of these things undermine productivity and attention and, uh, and and make it really hard to provide great customer service. So employers have an incentive to take on some of this challenge and try to work with their, with their, uh, with their workers to help them build up savings reserves and, and be set up for the, the volatility they face. Yeah, our producer pulled some statistics for us. So in a series of experiments run by researchers at Princeton, Harvard, and the University of Warwick, low-income individuals who are primed to think about financial problems performed poorly on a series of cognition tests with a mental load that was the equivalent of losing an entire night's sleep. Put another way, the condition of poverty imposed a mental burden akin to losing 13 IQ points. And as a point of reference, that is the cognitive difference observed between a chronic alcoholic and a non-alcoholic adult. So these are very significant cognitive loads. Um, and I think you're, you know, it's a great point to say the employer has skin in the game, you know, to make sure that they're, they're a part of the solution. I want to remind our listeners, you're, t- you're listening to Dollars and Change here on Sirius XM Channel 132. We're talking to Tim Flocka, who's executive director of Commonwealth. So, Tim, I have a, a question for you about um, the, the employer role. And when I'm thinking about the – I mean, we work at a very large institution. So we have the HR systems. We have payroll stuff. We have all the onboarding we could ever want and more. But a lot of people that we deal with are, are social entrepreneurs, and they're really trying to to use their business to make good things happen. And sometimes it's the product, but it's often w- with what they're doing with their employees. So that's a roundabout way of getting to the question of what can a smaller employer do around this if they're just starting up or if they're really just, you know, a five, right. you know, a a five employees or something uh, yes, along those lines? Is it... It's much easier to be a large corporation and do it, I think, but surely there's got to be something that the smaller employees can do. Yeah, I, I think you're you know, so right to call out how different it is if you're a small employer from a large employer. Well, a couple of things. I, I think it's really easy to fall in the trap of assuming they're only big, complicated, you know, only if I launch a pension plan or a 401k plan. But we've already talked about even something as simple as this split direct deposit capability that, frankly, is probably built into your payroll vendor uh, is an option. I would say if you're big enough to be offering health insurance, at this moment in time, there's a lot of, of growth of high-deductible health plans, and they offer lower premiums, so they're very attractive. Uh, we've done a lot of work on that, and, and it's really critical to recognize how there has to be a savings component with those plans, or you'll find you're paying for health coverage and people effectively don't, you know, really don't have coverage, uh, and they'll go to the doctor and face a lot of these uh, first-dollar expenses. I guess another thing I would say is that increasingly, I'm thinking here about uh, Oregon and, and Illinois and several other states that are um, leaders in trying to fill the gaps for small business. Now, California has something called Secure Choice. Um, so to be attuned to that, these are state-run programs that um, just ask you as the small business employer to collect 
payroll contributions, uh, payroll deductions to make that available to your workers, and then they'll take on the role of managing those assets oh. and, and servicing you know, the individual workers. Those are really geared around retirement today. Um, we're hopeful that over time they may expand to short-term liquid savings needs, which are such a gap. Um, but I think there's uh, there's some signs of promise there, recognizing that it's tough for, you know, it's tough for small businesses to solve these things entirely on their own. Yet the things I said a second are still true. They're on the front lines of where people earn their their income, so they have a role to play in, at a minimum, collecting and facilitating those contributions. Sure, Tim. When it comes to the decisions a lot of folks are going to have to make if they're listening to this segment and saying, I do want to take some control over increasing my savings. You know, the payroll split, having some of it go to savings is a great option, but folks also may have debt. Is it the best option to have savings versus debt that's got interest? What What would you recommend to to folks who want to start where they are? Is there a resource for learning, helping to make those decisions? Is it student loans? Is it my mortgage? Is it my debt? Is it my credit cards? Is it savings? Is it a little bit of everything? I know that that's not an easy answer because it's very individualized. Well, what's the, yeah. you know, what's the interest, the, you know, rate. interest yes. rate on those things and, and where are you in your life and what's to come? But how would someone make a decision like that? And, and what advice or resources can you point them towards? Yeah, those are great questions. And I, I agree with you. It's really tough to have a prescription and and we're we're really not sort of personal financial advisors. I I guess I'll offer this two thoughts. Um, you know, we talked a little bit in this in this segment about anxiety, and if you know that there's something that's really keeping you up at night and causing you a lot of stress, that might be something to listen to. Um, and that could be different, right? For some of us, we can be carrying you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt, and it's a bummer, but it's it's not keeping us up at night. But the fact that we don't have, you know, any money in our in our checking account, we're worried about things bouncing, and that could be the thing that's really the, the pain point. Um, so I, w- I guess I would I would try to mine your own, you know, emotional experience to to find where your priorities are. Um, consulting some form of expert is always a good idea, whether that be a, a book or a or an individual. Um, and then I'll show my bias a little bit. I, I just over and over again we come back to this question of a few hundred bucks or maybe slightly more than that in liquid savings. Um, that that's a really, you know, multi-purpose sort of Swiss Army knife for financial challenges. And said in the reverse, if you don't have that cushion and you do have a shock, you know, that exceeds what you can handle in in that moment, um, you're probably going to look at really expensive short-term lending, Mm -hmm. possibly Mm -hmm. hitting up family and friends, and all that stuff comes with really high costs, both financial and in some case, you know, social and and emotional. So so I guess that's a thing that I would probably encourage everybody to think about is how do you just get that that baseline few hundred bucks set aside? Yeah. And is that, you know, what is described as the $400 savings program? And can you tell problem. us... Problem. Sorry. Not pro- <laughs> problem. Yeah. Yeah. And can you tell us um, how big of a problem it is? Yeah. Well, uh, th- this is a stat that has really gotten a lot of traction. It comes from the Federal Reserve, uh, which is now for several years running, uh, asked this same series of questions of a cross-section of Americans and we were all surprised to see that, depending on the year, somewhere between 40 and I think the high was 47% of respondents to that survey said they, they couldn't handle a $400 shock without selling something or borrowing. And that, you know, for a lot of us, that's just a, that's a little bit of a sobering uh, check. Um, I, I kind of think about it this way. It's as if you're walking down the sidewalk and there's a one in two chance, you know, the person that you walk by 
who's living that close to the financial edge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the that's the challenge. Um, that particular stat, because of who has is behind it, and because it's credible, and it's been the same one over many years, mm-hmm. has really latched into the popular imagination. I think the the other piece that's right behind that that a lot of people may not realize quite as much is over the last decade, decade and a half, we've just understood this concept of financial volatility a whole lot better. It used to be that smart people and researchers thought about volatility as a year-to-year thing, and it turns out through the work of folks like uh, Rachel Schneider and and Jonathan Murdoch, who wrote a book called The Financial Diaries, uh, and some great research by the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute and a lot of others, the volatility within the month is extreme and yeah, tends yeah. to be higher the lower your income, right? And so what that means is a practical matter. You're, you're just spending a lot more time worrying about the things I'd alluded to. You know, what is that money going to be there when the bill hits? And, and the costs mm-hmm. of trying to manage that can be extraordinary um, and takes us back to that liquid savings reserve. So those two things are kind of married, the $400 question and the in increasing awareness of volatility. Yeah, as a student, I spend a lot of time doing that kind of juggling and balancing. Which one can I pay a few days late so that it gets in there before, yeah. you know, the paycheck comes? And it 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 takes a lot of time to be thinking through that. There there are other things I could be doing, like studying, rather than playing that way. Yeah, yeah, right. and, and a huge yeah huge emotional tax as we talked about. We are coming to the end of our segment, but I wanted to thank you, Tim, for joining us, and I wanted to. Um, you know, remind our listeners, remind all of us that there are resources out there, um, you know, that the $5 per month adds up uh, where that's possible and that there are a lot of great institutions and organizations like Commonwealth out there that are available and driven to be helpful and that, you know, we all have more to learn and more to do. Yeah, and I think it's, again, something for employees to think about because all of this is part of um, making sure your employees are positioned to be as good as they can be. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.